Chapter 9 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Frances Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Success of the First Memorial. Inevitably, a memorial such as that now described struck and exploded like a bombshell. It was carrying the war into Africa. It was the arraignment not of a local evil here and there, but of the state of things prevailing more or less in every township throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Incredible, incredible was the first natural outcry of humane people. Sensational and slanderous lies was the swift and fiery rejoinder of selectmen, almshouse keepers, and private citizens in arms for the credit of their towns. Everywhere the newspapers bristled with angry articles. There are some, this was the tone too often adopted, and Miss Dix may be one of them, who are always on tiptoe, looking forward for something more marvelous than is to be discovered in real life. And because the things themselves will not come up to this pitch of the imagination, the imagination is brought down to them and has a world of its own creating. All in vain had the memorialist sought to make it plain that it was a system and not individuals she arraigned, and that to put the pauper insane under the practically uncontrolled authority of ignorant and passionate persons, not only destitute of due knowledge, but destitute of any fit appliances for the treatment of the most terrible of human visitations, was the straight way to ensure a hell on earth. Carefully, and circumstantially had she written to the sheriffs all over the state and received from them detailed replies substantiating her position that nothing better could be looked for from such a system but on those more immediately arraigned all this made no impression such people felt themselves pilloried before the public gaze as fiends in human shape and naturally made frantic efforts to declare the statements of the memorial a tissue of lies. Quote, Did you never, says in his Autocrat of the Breakfast Table, Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes, in words so picturesquely descriptive of the situation that the temptation to quote them is too strong to resist, did you never, and walking in the fields, come across a large flat stone, which has lain, nobody knows how long, just where you found it, with the grass forming a little hedge, as it were, all round it, close to its edges. And have you not, in obedience to a kind of feeling that told you it had been lying there long enough, insinuated your stick, or your foot, or your fingers under its edge and turned it over, as a housewife turns a cake? What an odd revelation, 
and what an unforeseen and unpleasant surprise to a small community, the very existence of which you had not suspected, until the sudden dismay and scattering among its members was produced by your turning the old stone over. Blades of grass flattened down, colorless, matted together, as if they had been bleached and ironed. Hideous crawling creatures, some of them coleopterous or horny-shelled. Black, glossy crickets, with their long filaments sticking out like the whips of four-horse stagecoaches. Motionless, slug-like creatures, young larvae, perhaps more horrible in their pulpy stillness than even in the infernal wriggle of maturity. But no sooner is the stone turned, and the wholesome light of day let upon this compressed and blinded community of creeping things, than all of them which enjoy the luxury of legs, and some of them have a good many, rush round wildly, butting each other and everything in their way, and end in a general stampede for underground retreats from the region poisoned by sunshine. Next year you will find the grass growing tall and green where the stone lay. The ground bird builds her nest where the beetle had his hole. The dandelion and the buttercup are growing there and the broad fans of insect angels open and shut over their golden discs as the rhythmic waves of blissful consciousness pulsate through their glorified being. Very soon, however, was it to become clear to intelligent men and women that they were now called upon to deal with one who was at the last remove from a sensationalist with one, on the contrary, endowed not merely with a sensitive heart, but with a statesmanlike grasp of mind. She had raised no wild, feminine shriek of horror when first the abyss of evil had opened up before her, but had patiently explored the depths of the inferno, sternly shutting her lips till she should come out again to the light of day to report what her own eyes had seen. Exception might be taken to a particular shade of statement here or there, but to the main truth of her arraignment none. Soon there rallied to her side a band of able men, of whom such names as those of Dr. Samuel G. Howe, Dr. William E. Channing, Honorable Horace Mann, Reverend John G. Palfrey and Dr. Luther V. Bell of the McLean Asylum proved a tower of strength, and so to the fierce and insulting comments of selectmen or almshouse keepers, as of Groton, for example, she needed no more conclusive reply than the quiet publication of letters like the following from Dr. Luther V. Bell a man who, for humanity, science, and sound practical judgment, carried irresistible weight. Quote, McLean Asylum, February 15th, 1843. My dear Miss Dix, 
on recurring once more to your memorial for which i pray that you may have a reward higher than the applause of this world i thought i would make you a short statement touching a case of a young man in the poorhouse at groton referred to on page nineteen various coincidences led me to suppose this individual to be one james gilson such as the fact of having been at the hospital the peculiar blacksmith work for his restraint etc i extract a part of the history of his case as recorded at the time by my assistant of course with no expectation on his part of its being seen or published beyond the ordinary records of cases eighteen forty december fifteenth mr james gilson groton aged thirty single town pauper about nine months since whilst at work in lowell his derangement came on and soon after he was sent to the house of correction in east cambridge there he remained till last june eighteen forty when he was removed to the poorhouse in groton and confined in the following revolting manner a band of iron an inch wide went round his neck with a chain six feet long attached this was used for the purpose of securing him to any particular place his hands were restrained by means of a clavis and bolt of iron appropriated to each wrist and united by a padlock in this bondage this iron cruel bondage talking incoherently to be sure but without any exhibition of violence he was brought to the asylum in the morning after having been chained up the night before in a barn like a wild animal to spend its dreary hours his shackles were immediately knocked off in the presence of his keeper his swollen limbs chafed gently when the delighted maniac exclaimed my good man i must kiss you etc so little was this man a subject for personal restraint during his residence with us that he never even injured his clothes ate at a common table with knives and forks with a dozen others slept in a common bedroom and was considered as a pleasant patient filled with delusions after a short interval curative means were employed and as we judged with most obvious and encouraging advantage until on the twenty-third day of april that is after a little over four months trial when the overseers of the poor without previous notice sent for him while under the most energetic use of remedies which required a gradual discontinuance my assistant's records closes with saying reluctant to go for fear they will chain him again the occupant of this dreary abode is a young man you observe in your memorial who has been declared incurably insane alas he may be so now two years of chaining doubtless has extinguished for ever his hope of recovery 
but when he was removed from this place, I declare it as my opinion that he was not only not incurably insane, but was on the path to recovery, and every respect a promising case. So fully was I impressed with this that I urged the messengers to return till I could advise the town of his prospects, but this was declined. How much now, my dear madam, do you suppose the charge to the live and thriving town of Groton was for this poor man under the care of this department of the Massachusetts General Hospital? Precisely three dollars a week for every expense of support, care, and comfort. Perhaps a third or a half more than his present cost. Very truly yours, Luther V. Bell. End quote. Equally encouraging letters from other prominent men now came to Miss Dix. I have felt, wrote Horace Mann, in reading your memorial, as I used to feel when formerly I endeavored to do something for the welfare of the same class, as though all personal enjoyments were criminal until they were relieved. Dr. Channing, who had printed an eloquent notice of her memorial in the Christian world, wrote her of this notice. I only wish it were more worthy. Such as it is, I give it to you with my best thanks for your great work of humanity. Lucius Manlius Sargent sent word. I trust you will not suffer a moment's disquietude from the consideration that there is a morbid sensibility abroad which may question the propriety of such an investigation by one of your sex. At the present day of such pronounced ideas on the whole issue of woman's sphere and woman's work, such a letter as this last would only provoke a humorous smile. It is questionable, however, whether many of Miss Dix's letters gave her more real satisfaction. Lucius Manlius Sargent was himself a very knightly specimen of a man, and one whose chivalrous salute any woman would have taken pride in. While Miss Dix's own ideas of feminine propriety, rooted and grounded in a select young lady's boarding school, were of an exacting and old-fashioned order. No doubt she read the letter over several times, and rejoiced that in the eyes of so courtly a gentleman she had not unsexed herself in venturing to plead for her poor unsexed sisters. Very shortly after its first presentation to the Massachusetts legislature, the memorial was referred to a committee— of which Dr. S. G. Howe was appointed chairman. The committee made a report at once, strongly endorsing the truth of Miss Dix's statements, and fortifying them with other instances of like outrages on humanity, the report closing with an eloquent appeal for immediate legislative action. The entire provision for the insane in the state in the State Hospital at Worcester, in the McLean Asylum, 
and in the hospital at South Boston was, it was asserted, not adequate to the care of quite five hundred patients, while there were in the Commonwealth nine hundred and fifty-eight pauper, insane, and idiotic persons, to say nothing of about eight hundred at private charge. A resolution was introduced recommending that the trustees of the State Lunatic Hospital at Worcester shall erect additional buildings adjoining or near the existing buildings of said hospital sufficiently large for the addition of two hundred insane patients more. A capital piece of good fortune was it that at this juncture a man of the courage and indomitable humanity of Dr. S. G. Howe should have been in the legislature, ready and eager to engineer the bill through. All along had he stood by Miss Dix and encouraged her efforts. Now, as the debate went on, he continually sent her short, stimulating letters. Quote, I presented he says in one of these, your memorial this morning, endorsing it both as a memorial and a petition. Your work is nobly done, but not yet ended. I want you to select some newspaper as your cannon, from which you will discharge often red-hot shot into the very hearts of the people, so that, kindling, they shall warm up the clams and oysters of the house to deeds of charity. When I look back upon the time when you stood hesitating and doubting upon the brink of the enterprise you have so bravely and nobly accomplished, I cannot but be impressed with the lesson of courage and hope which you have taught even to the strongest men. You are pleased to overrate the importance of my efforts. I can only reply that if I touch off the piece, it will be you who furnish the ammunition. A little later on, as the inevitable delays to any work of reform presented themselves, Dr. Howe wrote less hopefully, quote, I do not like to indulge in feelings of distrust but have been irritated by the cold, pecuniary policy of these men. A friend overheard one of those very men who talked so pathetically to you say, we must find some way to kill this devil of a hospital bill. Speaking about these traitors, another friend, and one versed in the wiles of politicians, said to me, Doctor, never mind, there is a hell these fellows will find it. But God soften their hearts and enable them to realize the sad condition of the insane and turn and do otherwise. Happily, the feeling of discouragement expressed in this last letter proved needless. So profound had been the sensation throughout the commonwealth awakened by the frightful details and impassioned eloquence of the memorial that the obstructions and delays of politicians were swept away before a steadily rising tide of public indignation. The bill for immediate relief was carried by a large majority, 
and the order passed for providing state accommodations at Worcester for two hundred additional insane persons. At once, Dr. John G. Palfrey wrote congratulatingly to the happy woman, adding, I did not tell you what you will have understood, that Dr. Howe managed the business admirably. To say like an old stager would be doing him injustice. Like a man of humanity, energy, and abundant resources, as he is. Thus was ventured and won Miss Dix's first legislative victory, the precursor of such numbers to follow through the length and breadth of the United States, that their repetition year by year, the enormous sums of money they involved, the magnitude of the structures they led to the building of, the range of the field they opened out to advancing medical science, and the vast numbers of poor wretches transferred from stalls and chains to a comparative heaven of asylum comfort fairly startle the imagination it was a legislative victory which illustrated the peculiar characteristics of her mind two years as has been seen of patient concentrated work had preceded any word of appeal to the public in these two years she had gained the training of accurate observation and indomitable will so indispensable to any one who will probe to the bottom great evils and then resolutely steer the way through the obstruction deceit and wrath always aroused by insistence on radical reform sternly repressing the native intensity of an emotional nature instinctively on fire at the sight of wrong and cruelty she had acquired at last a dignity and repose of manner that carried with them the peculiar power always exercised by restrained emotion jailer or almshouse keeper no man however cunning or however brutal could henceforth think to wave her aside or refuse her entrance. Something formidable was there now about her, to which inferior natures irresistibly submitted. But the presence as of a higher power thus manifested came not in the wind, nor in the earthquake, nor in the fire, but in a still, small voice. Indeed, to this day, the oldest living friends of Miss Dix never weary of speaking of the wonderful quality of her voice. It was sweet, rich, and low, perfect in enunciation, and its every tone pervaded with blended love and power. Quiet but always tasteful in the style of her dress, her rich, wavy, dark brown hair brought down over the cheek and carried back behind the ears, her face lit with alternately soft and brilliant blue-gray eyes, their pupils so large and dilating as to cause them often to be taken for black, a bright, almost hectic glow of color on her cheeks, with her shapely head set on a neck so long, flexile, and graceful, as to impart an air of distinction to her carriage, 
all the accounts which have come down from this period of her career call up a personality preeminently fitted to sway those brought into contact with her in her higher moods of inspiration apart moreover from this training in self-control and power to set aside a like wile or violence in the attempt to block her way miss dix had learned another lesson through this her first experience in dealing with a legislative body it was the lesson of concentrating effort on the work of leading the leaders personally she never cared to appear in public it was thoroughly distasteful to her to do so she made no addresses she gathered no meetings to come to close quarters of eye conscience and heart with impressionable and influential minds to deliver her burden as from the lord to them and let it work on their sensibility and reason this was her invariable method dr howe had hit the centre when he said if i touch off the piece it will be you who furnish the ammunition for the public eclat of the explosion she cared little for the quality and quantity of the gunpowder and the penetrating power of the ball everything practical relief brought to the outcast and miserable the enlisting in their behalf every possible order of ability philanthropic political judicial religious this was her grand object one farther lesson however the greatest and most far-reaching of all had miss dix learned from her experience in massachusetts while there pursuing her investigations she had again and again crossed the border into other states notably into connecticut and rhode island the conviction thus steadily and irresistibly forced on her was that all over the united states from maine to florida from the atlantic to the mississippi the same appalling story held true of the wretched fate of the pauper insane everywhere insane persons confined in cages closets cellars stalls pens chained naked beaten with rods and lashed into obedience the piteous words of her own memorial came back to her echoed and re-echoed from every side but god be praised not to depress or daunt her not to make her cry in despair what in the way of relief is one little drop in such an ocean of misery no but only to challenge the heroic temper of her mind and start the thrilling thought if one legislature can thus be besieged and carried by storm why not another and another and another now first broke upon her the length and breadth of the mission to which she felt herself divinely called resolutely and untiringly state by state would she take up the work first exhaustively accumulating the facts and preparing the ammunition 
and then investing and besieging the various legislatures till they should capitulate to the cry of the perishing within their borders in deliberate planning as she did thus early in her career so vast a campaign was revealed the greatness and compass of her mind the splendors and audacities of moral genius now flashed out in her far more than simply a good and merciful woman was here here was a woman with the grasp of intellect the fertility of resources and the indomitable force of will that go to the make-up of a great statesman or a great military commander End of chapter nine